Thanks for tuning in to our Rolling Hills Community Church Sermon Podcast. I'm David Curtis, the worship and discipleship pastor here at our Rolling Hills Nolensville campus. We are so glad that you've joined us today for the final week of our series, The One. Today you'll hear from Pastor Nick. He'll be teaching from 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll be learning what the meaning of love is from a biblical perspective. Now here's Pastor Nick. Good morning. I'm really glad that you guys are here today. And, I, and, I, and this is a, kind of the concluding Sunday of a series that we've been in for the past several weeks um, called The One. Uh, and, and what I, I hope and really honestly what I know and believe that God's Word tells us about this whole idea of the one as it's concerning dating or marriage relationships is that ultimately none of these ones in life are going to be any closer to where they need to be until we get straight up reconciled to the one in life that we need more than anything in this life. And his name is Jesus. So we're just going to keep talking about that today. And I hope that it's something that challenges the way that we all think and the way they all perceive relationships in this life. I had an incredible privilege, maybe a once in a lifetime opportunity. Who knows when something like this is ever going to roll around again? A, because it's um, super far away and takes a really long time and kind of expensive. And also, you know, there's COVID and world relations. Um, I got the chance last year, and I'm super thankful to go to Israel. And and really, honestly, understanding that it may be a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I took 183 pages of notes and took over 500 photographs, just experience and trying to soak in and take up all of the opportunities that I could to see this geography kind of come to life. Um, And one of those opportunities was this selfie of me and my friend James Etta. (laughs) Uh, right on the Red Sea, where we just had the privilege of kind of going snorkeling and seeing maybe some of the body of water that Moses and the Israelites may have crossed together. It's just an incredible opportunity. But James had said something at the beginning of the week that stuck with us uh, throughout the entire trip of almost three weeks of being in all of these places. She asked this question. She said, it's going to be on your screens this morning. Just wait for it. It's going to pop up. You're going to love it. Lord, you said that there would be milk and honey but I'm not seeing it yet. Because the first part of our trip was after we left these ancient cities was going into the wilderness that Israel, after crossing the Red Sea and wandering around for over 40 years, landed in trying to figure out this land of promise that God was going to take them to. And over and over again, they had heard this abundant promise that God was going to lead them to a place that was flowing with milk and honey. And if you look back through the Old Testament scriptures, Israel gets a bad rap and the people of God get a bad rap. And we have the privilege of being able to look at the biblical canon from Genesis all the way to Revelation, and we can stick ourselves on the outside of it knowing that we have the whole of it and kind of judge the people that are in the middle of it because they hadn't seen yet the end of the story, but you and I know it. And so it's a little bit judgmental to go back to people who are stuck right in the middle of it and want to chronicle their behavior as if, how did they miss it? God's been so good. He gave us, how did they miss it and misinterpret it and misunderstand it? Well, God made a promise to them that he was going to lead them to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. And James Etta gets out there in the wilderness and she said, well, I understand why they complained. Because <laughs> look around. He said there would be milk and honey, but I ain't seeing it yet. In fact, it would be decades before they would see it. And even when they saw it, they still weren't quite sure what they were looking at. I think that you and I are a people that look at the promises of God, and we kind of, whether we're recognizing or not, 
we kind of do that. We look at this idea of life is supposed to offer us some sort of picture of happily ever after, and you're like, Lord, if this is happily ever after, I ain't seeing it yet. (laughs) Or it's not what I thought it was going to look like. Where am I happy at? (laughs) Because that was supposed to be part of this. And whether you're single or married or used to be married or want to be married or any of the other kinds of relationships or are just so sick and tired of talking about married, I get that too. Like, regardless of where you are on any sort of relationship spectrum in this life, we often find ourselves looking around in situations going, all right, where am I happy at? Because I memorized these words, and I trusted these words, and I said these prayers, and I thought these thoughts, and I tried to stay consistent with it for a really long time, but life is still not the way that I thought it was going to be, or the way that I thought you promised it would be. When it's easy to miss and really hard to find, Scripture tells us that there is a better way. The happy that we're looking for may not be the happy that we need. There really might be something better. So we land today in our teaching passage from the book of 1 Corinthians, and you can go ahead and start thumbing through your Bibles or getting out your phones and figuring out where it is. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's kind of nestled in the middle of the New Testament. You've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then this history of the starting of the church, the book of Acts, and then a whole series of letters to believers that are scattered all around the provinces, first Romans, and then next 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and you can kind of find that. We're going to dive into chapter 13 according to what we read in the book of Acts. The church that was positioned in Corinth was one that was started by Paul on a second missionary journey in 50 to 51 AD. After his visit with Athens, he went and stayed with these people, Priscilla and uh, Aquila. And for 18 months, he taught the people of Corinth what it was like to know and to follow God. He was working as a tent maker and teaching the believers how they should follow God. Jesus. Corinth was a massive metropolitan, really urban city center of all kinds of commerce and development within the empire, and it was plagued by so many different parts of culture. It is easy to see, looking back, what we understand from history, that it was difficult for the believers in Corinth amidst all the messages, amidst all the religions, against all the challenges, against all the temptation, to really understand what it was to follow Jesus and not be twisted up by that temptation and succumb to its effects. And so Paul begins to to write them letters. And there's a letter that we don't have that he references in the letters that we do have that might have been kind of meath and scathing. Like Paul literally saying, you people need to get your act together. And so then we read in this First Corinthians letter that we do have him answering questions that they potentially had about a letter that we don't have. And I feel, gosh, I feel like this is it. The number one job that I have as a dad and a pastor is to answer questions and settle disagreements. That's kind of the number one responsibility of a parent, right? Look, answer questions, settle disagreements, answer questions, address problems. That's what it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul gives kind of a summary of what this letter is going to be about. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another. He's settling divisions in what you say, and that there may be no divisions among you. This right here was not the easiest letter, I imagine, for Paul to write. And I don't think that looking at the original audience in the original context, wandering around in the wilderness of brand new Christianity that they were, I don't think it must have been the easiest letter for them to read and address. 
And right towards the end of it, we get this incredible gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this, this poem describing for people, amidst all of the lies that you hear out, out there in culture, I want to tell you what real love is. And so if you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting with verse 1, kind of bump it back one little verse because you read at the end of, verse tw- of chapter 12, he says this, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Paul's going to show the people a better way. You guys have been looking to try to figure out things over here. Let me show you a better way. You've been understanding happily ever after in this context. Let me show you an even happier, better way. This is it. We can put our stock. It's in your notes this morning. Maybe you're following along on a worship guide or flipping through the mobile app this morning trying to fill in blanks as you go. You can put your stock in in really just about anything, but without love, I, I want you to see these three things. Without love, life will be too much of the wrong thing. Verse 1 of First Corinthians chapter 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Now this idea of speaking in the tongues of men is speaking in multiple languages because they had gotten so hung up on the fact that the Holy Spirit would manifest itself in people by getting them to speak these crazy languages. This idea of speaking in tongues. Maybe you grew up in a Christian tradition today that continues to practice that gift and interpret that gift regardless of what that gift is. What Paul is explaining to them, you guys think that this is the pinnacle of the Christian existence. You guys think that this is the very top of where you could be in following Jesus. Let me, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, show you a more excellent way. Let me show you something that's even better than that. Not even just speaking in the tongues of men. How about speaking in the tongues of angels? Maybe there's some heavenly cosmic angel language that only they know and speak. And maybe you have, as a gift of the Holy Spirit, an ability to speak and interpret those words. Let me tell you something that's even better than that. You can do all of those things, but if you have not love, you're only a clanging gong or a resounding cymbal. And we know that those are good instruments. We went to a high school football game on Friday night, and about midway through, I thought, hey, where's the marching band? And then I learned that because of COVID and because of all the other things, they aren't having those right now. And I thought, oh, we're not going to get to see a halftime show. You know, no big deal. Nothing like watching a bunch of high school kids walk around and play instruments. I knew that if we had seen that, there would, in fact, have been some cymbals and some big drums that people bang. You can't have a whole song with just those things. They're good in their spot. But too much of it, way too much of it, right? You can't have that. You need a melody. You need harmonies. And those kind of instruments are there to enhance the message. They are not there to be the message. They're there to enhance the melody, but they cannot in themselves perform the melody. Too much of it, it's just annoying. You can put your stock in just about anything in life. But too much of the wrong thing is going to be too much of the wrong thing. Put your stock in just about anything, but without love, ultimately, Scripture says, you will amount to nothing. Verse 2 reads pretty clearly, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, like that was a condition that plagued the church, this idea of being able to prophesy what, what the future was going to hold, because in the middle of a persecuted church that was very uncertain in the Roman Empire, they desperately wanted to know what was going to happen next. Somebody step up with the gift of prophecy. Somebody tell us what the future holds. And as we start out in October of 2020, in election year, I do need somebody to tell me what the future holds. Because it doesn't feel very certain. I know that it is. I read that it is. I know we're fine, but it doesn't feel that way. 
So I would like for somebody to be able to prophesy. If you have that gift, see me after. Tell me what's going to happen. Tell me what it all means. They elevated those gifts of prophecy. They elevated those gifts of future telling so much that they were missing something that was not just bigger, but also better. You can have that gift of prophecy. You can be able to look into the future. You can be able to explain all mysteries and all knowledge and interpret what every single part of this word means for all time. But if you do it without love, you have nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all ministries and all knowledge. If I have the faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. This is why mean Christians are an oxymoron. Some Some of us grew up in a tradition where all the pastor did was yell. All the pastors did was scream, and all the pastors did was push, and all the pastors did was scare. And being right in their theology about the words that come out of this book is one thing. But we don't want to just be right in our orthodoxy, what we believe and what we know to be true. We want to be right in our orthopraxy, the way that we express it to others. I apologize to believers who have challenges or wayfarers who have challenges and who are scared of churches and scared of pastors and scared of this whole family atmosphere that we have because something in their past was mean or belligerent or rude or arrogant or scary. Because you can have the gift of prophecy. You can have the faith that moved mountains. You can have an ability to explain all these mysteries. But if you're mean when you do it, it just doesn't count. Love is a more, according to Paul, excellent way. You have all that stuff. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. Put all your stock in just about anything, but without love, you'll actually forfeit having anything of value. It says in, in, in verse 3, that if you give all you possess to the poor and give over your body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You can actually be the most sacrificial, most selfless, most generous person out there. But without love, you you forfeit anything of value. I I would assert that, that most of what people think about the idea of love or most of what they think about the idea of happily ever after ends up being nothing more than a whole bunch of clanging gongs and sounding cymbals than it does actual biblical love. We've got some dear friends. They've been close to us for a real long time. Uh, Names are Michael and Sarah Glass. We're in community group with them for years and years and years. And if we sat down and told you some of the story and some of the history and some of the challenges that they've walked over the last five years, you would say, I imagine that they turned their back on Jesus. And listen, you wouldn't blame them. You'd kind of understand but they didn't. And and hanging in their kitchen, I did my own little mock-up of what I know the drawing looks like, and you can see it on here. Like hanging in their kitchen, they have this kind of symbol, and it's basically a heart with a greater than symbol. I learned when I was in elementary school math that the alligator always likes to eat the biggest thing, and so if the alligator mouth is facing the thing, then that's the thing that's greater. Love is greater than the ups and downs. Love is greater than the ups that you face in life. Like, just imagine your highest, best, most incredible day. Love's better than that, according to this. Imagine your worst and most terrible low. Love is greater than that. In fact, you can cross out the arrows and just write anything. Because no matter what we read, no matter what we understand, no matter what we cling to, no matter what we're looking for, where are the milk and honey at? 
no matter what we're looking for, love is greater. So imagine as a family that they see that every time they're in their kitchen, because where else are you at in your house except for that room most of the time, right? That their kids and that also their guests and the people that gather, they, they see that symbol and they recognize, hey, you guys are right. Love is greater. This whole passage of Scripture certainly applies to marriage, and if you've been to a wedding in the last, I don't know, of your lifetime, you've likely heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13 read or recited or painted in some sort of picture, but, but ultimately this is not painting a picture for us of what marital love is supposed to be. That's too simple. It's painting a picture for us of what real love and all love is supposed to be, and ultimately the perfect love that we only find in Jesus. And because we find it in Jesus, we're supposed to embody that kind of love to every single one of our relationships, certainly starting at home if there's a spouse or if there are kids, but going out to all people beyond that. We read in 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 13, verse 4, that love is patient, that love is kind. Some of you can recite this. It, it does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. I'm going to need to highlight that one right there. Keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but with joy, rejoices with the truth that always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And then the first part of verse 8, love never fails. This whole idea of love in Scripture. Like, we have this one word love in the English language, and I can use that about I love my wife, I love my kids, I love Jenny's ice cream, right? And it's the same word, but it doesn't apply equally in all situations, or at least it shouldn't. Because if I love goat cheese and cherries as much as I love, y'all have had that flavor? Oh, it's good, right? Or, oh, the cold brew and coconut, like the cold coffee coconut. That's a, that's a dairy-free flavor. You can almost eat that and not even feel bad about yourself when it's done. Like, I love Jenny's ice cream. Yeah, I can, I can see the gift cards coming in now. Hey, pastor, here's some Jenny's. Use my free flu shot gift card from Publix to buy some. It's good. But if I love Jenny's the same way I love Susan, it's terrible. In the Greek language, they had multiple words for love so that they didn't get those things mixed up. You had phileo, which is where we get the word Philadelphia. What do we call that? The city of brotherly love. It's this relational friendship kind of love. And then they had eros, which is not actually mentioned in Scripture, but we know what kind of love. It's where we get the word erotic. Like, it's where we're not going to talk about that today, but that's one of the types of love that they talked about actually a lot in the Greek culture, not so much in this part of Scripture, thank goodness, because I'd get a little red if we had started to go there this morning. Like, you had phileo love and eros love and storge love, which is almost just a little bit like the agape love that we definitely want to read about. Because agape love, it, it's, its technical definition is affection, goodwill, love, benevolence. But as it's understood in this context, what it really means is God's unconditional love. And so what you're reading in this passage of Scripture is that God's love is patient. God's love is kind. God's love does not envy. Although we read in the Old Testament that He's a jealous God, God's love does not boast. God's love is not proud. Although if there's anybody that had a reason to be proud or boastful, it would be God Almighty. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. God's love is not easily angered. This agape love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Agape love always protects, always hopes, always perseveres, always trusts. Unconditional love never fails. 
And that's because at the end of the day, God's love is even when our love isn't. God's love is all of these things even when our love comes in second. He says towards the end of this letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 that we are to do everything in love. What kind of love? Unconditional agape love. It's this kind of love. The patient love, the kind love, the the not envious love, the not proud love, the not rude love, that we are to love our enemies. Matthew chapter 5 verse 44 says this. Hey, Jesus is talking to people. He says, but I tell you, you've heard it said, you can do this, but let me tell you something different. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's agape, unconditional kind of love that we are to love our enemies. And so we can take this scripture all we want to and paste it up in our weddings and talk about the way that a man is supposed to love a woman and the woman's supposed to love a man and the 1 Corinthians 13 that is supposed to characterize every single aspect of their homes. But quite specifically for us, it's that kind of love that is supposed to characterize the way we love even our enemies. And you know, at the end of the day, that kind of takes a lot of things off the table because sometimes your spouse feels like your enemy. <laughs> so to the man in the room who says, well, I can't really love my spouse today because she's not very lovely. Well, that's okay. Just go back to Matthew. You're supposed to love your enemy that way too. With that kind of sacrificial, unconditional love, it's a no matter what kind of love. It's also that kind of love, Matthew chapter 22, that we're supposed to love our neighbor. Young scholar in the Old Testament law, basically a lawyer, comes to Jesus and he says, hey, 613 commands in the Old Testament, can you sum them up for me and tell me which one is the absolute most important? And Jesus says, oh, I'll go ahead and tell you. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Oh, and by the way, here's a bonus for you, some extra credit. The second is just like it. Love your neighbor, agape your neighbor, unconditionally serve your neighbor like yourself. It's that kind of love that we're supposed to love our neighbors with, Jesus' love. Patient love, kind love, not envious love, not proud love, love that delights in the truth, the the protecting kind of love, the trusting kind of love, the hopeful love, the persevering kind of love. We're supposed to love our neighbors that way. Certainly, Ephesians chapter 5, love our wives or our husbands, our spouses that way, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But what about this one? How about love one another? If you think this is just getting bigger to where we could have boiled it down to basically say, everybody, we did. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to love everyone always. There's a mask for that, right? We have a new one this morning. It's green. You know, we had the purple one that we gave out several. You know, masks are fashion statement these days, right? You kind of want to match them to your clothes, or you kind of want to put a slogan across your lip and tell everybody what you believe in life. Well, how about love everyone always? And the problem is that in the church, we are content to love some people sometimes. (laughs) But that's not what Scripture says. It's agape, patient, kind, not envious, not boastful, love that we want to give everyone all ways. This whole idea of keeping no records of wrongs, it's, it's a struggle per, in a lot of ways, particularly in marriage. Because who knows your wrongs and your faults better than your spouse? But this idea of real godly love, if, if real love needs to be equitable, or if it needs to be fair, or if it needs to be reciprocated, then ultimately, at the end of the day, it's not real love. 1 John chapter 3.16 says, this is how we know what real love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, everybody. 
that if you want to know what real love is, it's, it's sacrificial love. For a lot of people, love is an exchange. It's a transaction. You love me, and I'll love you. And even in our marriage seminars and in our, in, our, in, our, in, in our teachings, in our books, even our Christian literature, we talk about the idea of a love bank. You've heard that before. The idea that if somebody makes a deposit, then they can come back later on and make a debit. And that's certainly true, but it's also incomplete. Because sometimes, you know, our accounts, they become overdrawn. And, and your spouse or your friend or your boyfriend, girl, whatever, or just somebody in your life, they consistently making debits without making any deposits. Well, that'll get you in trouble in the world of banking. That's not what real love is. Because if it has to be equitable, then it's, it's not real love. We understand the idea that when two people come together, there's this essence of compromise and that they're both giving and that they're both serving and that they're both in that type of transactional relationship with one another, but God's love goes way beyond that. The question of happily ever after and finding somebody that's going to love you, who you can love back, and y'all can be in this mutually beneficial kind of relationship, it is a pretty picture, but it's not the only picture, and it's not even the best picture. Because the better picture is understanding that we've already found the one. You can go looking for the one. Where am I happy at? Or you can recognize that you've already found the one who loves you and invites you to love all others through him with his kind of love. Jesus is where the better is. That's, that's where the milk and honey is. That's where the happily ever after is. The better way, and this is why Paul had to say it to these people, is often the otter way. Doesn't make sense. The better way, it is certainly the harder way. And ultimately, it's the more costly way. Y'all can have your milk and honey, but you're going to have to wander around the wilderness to find it. You, you can have the happy, but it's going to look differently than you think. Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, my child, the happy is me. What if? This happily ever after picture that we think that the world is going to give us is not all about what you get or who you find, but instead about who has you no matter what. And he wants to use you in spite of everything else. The end of that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13 says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, hey, faith and hope are good, but the greatest of these is love. I want you to see and share a testimony this morning, a story of that love playing out in ways that we may not have anticipated. Um, some people that we love who are dear to the life of our church, who found happily ever after, and it looked different than what they thought, but it was better. I think for, for me in my, my younger years, I, when you say those vows, you think uh, for richer, for poor. I think I thought, well, you're poor when you first get married, but then you get richer as you, as you get married, right? There's this income like this, which has not been necessarily the case. I think in the sickness and health, you think, well, we're healthy now because we're young. When we get old, one of us is going to be sick, but that's natural because we're going to be 80 or 90 or whatever. That's not been the case either. <laughs> I did mean my vows when I said them, and they were certainly important and are important, but um, 
it doesn't work out as a linear kind of graph like you think it would. It looks like this. I would say dating. I just thought marriage would be a bigger, better extension of dating. It was so exciting. It was so adventurous. We were so we felt so in love, um, and we knew we knew that there were marriages out there that had conflict and weren't working, but that. That wasn't gonna happen to us because we were so in love that we could just conquer. We were gonna conquer anything and everything. It, it was gonna be absolutely amazing and nothing could. No big no, problems. No problems, absolutely no problems. Didn't think we'd have any problems. No. There came a point about year 10 when I recognized that I just didn't feel happy anymore. This wasn't exciting anymore. It was really hard and it seemed like it would be easier to not be married. It was at that point when the Lord really got a hold of my heart and my life and um, I started asking the Lord to reveal to me the things of my heart that needed changing and stopped focusing so much on what he was doing or what he wasn't doing. And the more I learned about the Lord and the more I learned about how much he loved me and what he had done for me and the way that he loves me, the more I started understanding what that looked like to love the Lord and to love other people. I had to work on my relationship with Christ with me. Um, and when I did that, I became a better husband. I became less self-focused. I became less prideful, less self-centered, less transactional and, and consumer-driven. And, and she did the same thing. When we each have focused on our relationship with God, it's allowed us to uh, not only improve our marriage, but to have Him be the center and be able to work through life together with a Christ-like focus. And so to be able to help each other through situations, through difficulties, even just everyday things. And it wasn't about how I felt in the ins and outs of every day, and it wasn't about what I would get in return from Him. It was about loving Him in a way that would glorify the Lord. My job is to be the husband Christ has called me to be and be more Christ-like, and so that's a choice every day. And it works really well when you follow His design, and I'm certainly more in love with her today than I've ever been. And so the difference in what I thought marriage was and what it actually has been is a huge difference, but it's so much better than I thought it was. Yeah, I would say happily ever after is much different than I originally, originally thought happily ever after was the fairy tale. It was the way that the world um, perceives happily ever after. It's the fantasy, you know? So there is the, the excitement in our marriage and there is the joy in our marriage and then there's the fun and there's the adventure uh, but there's also the hard and but it's a it's a hard that we do together. A little bit about my diagnosis I was diagnosed in uh, January this year with uh, an aggressive form of leukemia. Uh, it was definitely a shock as uh, most cancer diagnoses are. I've undergone gone several rounds of chemo, um, several procedures and things and even back then, in the most difficult times in our marriage, we didn't realize that God was prepping us and preparing us for 
what we would be walking through in this season right now of walking through a, a cancer diagnosis, walking through trials and suffering, um, and to, to be able to see what he's done in our life. And if we were to walk, have walked through that back then, I just, I don't know that we would, we would have made it back then and walking through it now, like, okay, we're, we're okay because we have the Lord. We're okay because we have the strength and we have the hope that comes from that relationship with him. Yeah. I wouldn't trade this time with the physical sickness for 15 years ago when we were physically fine, but our marriage was in shambles. I wouldn't make mm -hmm. that trade. This is, this is the better, even though it's in the sickness, um, because in the health, when we weren't walking with the Lord, um, that, was, that, was a lot more that was a lot more difficult because we were trying to do it in our own strength. And, and that, was ju that just led to destruction. Um, when we focus on how can we glorify, how can we use this relationship to glorify and honor the Lord and grow in our relationship with the Lord, grow in our relationship with one another, then teach our children um, who the Lord is and what it looks like um, to love the Lord. It's an amazing journey, but it's one that takes perseverance and it takes sacrificial effort. Um, but thankfully, we know that God gives us the resources that we need through his word and how to walk this out in a way that, that is obedient to him. It's a lot of work, but it's, it's more than worth it. Some of you may know that Kathy is the counseling director at Rolling Hills, and you understand from the video where they are right now in terms of Scott's diagnosis. He's a couple of weeks into a 100-day stem cell transplant journey, um, and so it's not over by any stretch of the means. Um, it's not even to the halfway point by any stretch of the means, but did you catch that? That better has come even in sicker. That's because of this. That's this word. That's what it does to people. When, when, when we understand that God's love is patient, that God's love is kind, that God's love does not envy, that God's love does not boast, that God's love is not proud, that God's love is not rude, that God's love is not self-seeking, it's then that we've truly found the one that our soul longs for, and it's only then that we can love anybody else with the kind of love that we long to give and receive. It's only when we've found the one that any of this earthly one business is ever going to work. And so we say as a people of God, reaching out, growing up, giving our all, understanding who he is and what it all means that there is a better way. Sometimes it's the harder way. Sometimes it's the more costly way. It's definitely the odder way, but it's the better way. It's the better way to understand love and to approach relationships in this life. Second century North African theologian by the name of Tertullian, it's a fun name. He looked at the early church and, and remarked, just kind of observing their behavior, saying, look, look how they love one another and how they are ready to die for each other. Their love in the early church, it looked different. Where's the happy at? It's, it's in a place we never would have looked, but we found so much more than what we were looking for. He went on to talk and say that it was the blood of martyrs 
people that were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus Christ and for each other. That was the seed of the church. That the church grew on the backs of people that were willing to lay down their lives. And they looked different than anybody else around them. It's because their love was different. And that's the way that we want our love to look too. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are grateful for this day and this journey that we've taken over the past several weeks, examining our earthly relationships and knowing that they cannot and will not be right until we figure out our heavenly relationship, the one that we so desperately need in you. And we thank you for the kind of love that you have given us in Jesus. And Lord, we want to display that love. But what we understand is that we can't display that love until we've experienced that love. And so right where you are this morning, like right where you're sitting and hanging out and just being, would you maybe ask your own heart that question? Have I truly experienced um, that kind of love, the, the, the agape love, the unconditional love, the Jesus kind of love? We so desperately want to be a church that sees transformation in people, the kind that you heard about in Scott and Kathy, and understand, understand fully that it's only when we come to a position and a place where we recognize our great need for Jesus that we can truly find our happy and truly love other people too. So maybe today is a decision-making day for you to experience the kind of love and freedom that you can find in Jesus. We want to know that. We want to celebrate that. We want to talk about that. I'll be available at the conclusion of the service just to chat with you and pray with you about any of the questions that you may be asking or any of the thoughts that you may be thinking regarding what it means to truly know God's love. Father, we dedicate this time to you, and we thank you for the incredible love that we've received in your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about what's going on in the life of Rolling Hills, download our Rolling Hills app or visit our website at rollinghills.church. From there, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook to stay up to date on what's happening and ways you can connect. Thanks for listening. We're thankful for you.